When I was very, very grown up and old in fifth grade, <clears throat> the schools in America were ramping up for a big celebration of the American Bicentennial. Anybody here old enough to remember the Bicentennial? Oh, okay. All right. Um, everything we studied, it seemed, for a couple of years was all about U.S. history. So that fall, the class I was in was assigned Jonathan Edwards' letters. Um, this is Jonathan Edwards. I didn't know him from John Wayne. But we read a whole bunch of notes like, uh, like this one. This is a letter on spiders. 19-year-old Jonathan Edwards wrote this to a member of the Royal Society in London. Um, Edwards was mesmerized by the flying spiders that are common in New England. They can, they can actually float through the air. And in this letter, he, he observes how they do it. It's really remarkable. Look at the detail. Listen. Um, when a spider would go from one tree or branch to another, or would recreate himself by sailing or floating on the air, he first lets himself down a little way from the twig he stands on by a web, as in figure one. And then, taking hold of it by his forefeet, as in figure two, he then separates or loosens part of the web CD from the part BC by which he hangs. Which part of the web CD, being thus loosened, will by motion of the air be carried out towards E which will, by the sufferance of the spider, be drawn out of his tail with infinite ease by the movement of the air as in figure three. I was absolutely transported reading this. I mean, here was a guy observing, unabashedly recording delight in the amazing things all around him. The next thing of his I read was, uh, was on, of the rainbow, where, where this teenager is marveling at Sir Isaac Newton's great work on optics. Um, as I read... True story, I was convicted. You see, I had started out like that, but as a very old, official, double-digit aged fifth grader, I was now too cool to care about magical things in the world. At least that's what I thought. I thought I was supposed to be like that. Cool kids, I thought, as a very grown-up fifth grader, are not fascinated by nature. They're only fascinated by girls. But thanks to Jonathan Edwards... It suddenly seemed acceptable to me to go dig out my old journal. I had an old journal that I had begun when I was eight years old, and it was full of notes that I had made about how the crawdads moved in the creek behind our house and, and why maybe they swam backwards and how many legs they had and what were the dens of them like and what did that do about the monarch butterflies and there were milkweed uh, pods that grew all along that creek and how the monarchs fed on those and what happened and what the chrysalis were like. Jonathan Edwards' letters reopened my eyes. By the way, there's a theologian named Fred Sanders. He, uh, he had a similar response to Edward's uh, spider letter, but unlike me, Fred can draw. Um, look at these awesome images that Fred put together. And these are, these are pictures he imagined of a young Edwards studying spiders. Look at this. Isn't this cool? He's just out in the world, just learning and thinking and then writing it all down, sending it to the Royal Society in London. Now, as a fifth grader, I had no idea that Mr. Edwards was possibly the most famous thinker in American history, maybe the greatest mind America ever produced. I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of the fact that Jonathan Edwards became a Christian in his early 20s. Uh, I didn't know about his service as a pastor, his role in the Great Awakening, the most magnificent spiritual movement ever in American history. I just knew that this guy's letters made me open my eyes. And the summer after fifth grade, that next summer, I also became a Christian. I was at camp. I was out in, in God's creation, and it was there that I trusted Jesus. I was still reading Edwards when I got home from camp, and I was astounded to read passages like this. Look at this one. All truth, Edwards says, is given by revelation, either general or special. Uh, by the way, that's theological terms. General revelation means created world. Special revelation means the Bible. 
All truth is given by revelation, either general or special, and it must be received by what, everybody? Reason. Reason is the God-given means for discovering the truth that God discloses, whether in His world or His Word. While God wants to reach the heart with truth, He does not bypass the mind, close quote. So let's open our minds to this revelation of God. Let, let, let's wander down to the creek with Pastor Edwards, shall we? And let's begin with general revelation, the wonder of the world. Psalm 19 is a great introduction to God's revelation. Turn to Psalm 19. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Psalm 19. For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There's no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he, God, has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Stop there. If you wish to take notes like Jonathan Edwards, you'll find space in our bulletin that is available either online or in the, uh, in the one in your hands you got when you came in. And in our outline, we observe that verses 1 and 2 teach how the heavens declare God's glory. Look here. I want you to look at the words in Hebrew. Sapar is the word we render declare. It's a really old word, and quite frankly, its origins aren't even understood by the experts. Here's what we do know. We know, this is a true story, Sapar was used in the earliest accounting courses. Yeah, it, it, it was a business term for adding something up and recording it carefully, Sapar. Now, Kavod is what we translate glory. This is so awesome. Our forebears could not come up with any way. They couldn't come up with a word to describe the incredible glory of God. So they used kavod. It's a, it's a word that means heavy. It's, by the way, it's also a business word. It, it was used of a transaction in the marketplace for things that had gravity, things that had weight. So, so when you go home today to do your afternoon projects and you pick up that bag of quickcrete and you go, oh, that's heavy. What you just said was safar kavod. That's what you just said. God's glory is awesome. It is a weight of majesty that the stars are always trying to add up. There are at least 10 sextillion stars in the universe. That's 10 to the 24th power, or, or 100 billion, billion, billion. And every one of those stars is ever in the process of tabulating and recording the awesome weight of the glory of God. Our elder Randall Satchel reminded me of a, of a poem by uh, Robert W. Service, one of my grandfather's favorite poets. Uh, he was a Scottish-Canadian guy um, who tried to capture Psalm 19 in poetry. Um, by the way, Robert Service <clears throat> did his best work during the gold rush years. He went to the Yukon with all the miners, and he wrote fantastic poems about the life in the Yukon. 1907, he wrote this one, The Three Voices. The waves have a story to tell me as I lie on the lonely beach. Chanting aloft in the pine tops, the wind has a lesson to teach, but the stars sing an anthem of glory I cannot put into speech. The waves tell of ocean spaces, of hearts that are wild and brave, of populous city places, of desolate shores they lave, of men who sally in quest of gold to sink in an ocean grave. <clears throat> the wind is a mighty roamer. He bids me keep me free, clean from the taint of the gold lust, hardy and pure as he. Cling with, love my, cling with my love to nature as a child to the mother knee. But the stars throng out in their glory. They sing of the God in man. 
They sing of the mighty master of the loom his fingers span, where a star or a soul is part of the whole, a weft in the wondrous plan. Here he closes. Here by the campfire's flicker, deep in my blanket curled, I long for the peace of the pine gloom when the scroll of the Lord is unfurled and the wind and the wave are silent and world is singing to world. The heavens declare God's glory and this silent message touches all. Verse 3, there is no speech, there are no words. Their voice is not heard. The message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. Jonathan Edwards spoke to this on that essay I mentioned of the rainbow. He said this, surely there is something in the unruffled calm of nature that overawes our little anxieties and doubts. The sight of the deep blue sky and the clustering stars above seems to impart a quiet to the mind. Natural phenomena move human beings because we are designed in the image of the creator God. Think about it. If we were merely materialist spawn of accident, there would be no such thing as natural beauty. There, there, wouldn't, there would only be useful and not useful. No one would sit and enjoy the soothing sound of the surf if we were just material atoms. If the created world didn't speak to something glorious, there would be no need for texts like this one. Um, my mom wrote me last week to show that her gardenia had finally bloomed. Now, that plant serves no materialist purpose for her or for me. But we were both moved with the reflected glory of God's creation in this plant that for two years we've been waiting to see it bloom. The same thing can be said for history and music and biology and, and myriad other manifestations of God's wonder revealed in the world. Anybody here like fireflies? Raise your hand if you like fireflies. Oh, me too. A wood full of bioluminescent lampyridae is, is one of the most magical things on earth. And they argue very powerfully for a God of glory who is beyond the material world. Emily Martin is a fantasy author, and uh, she wrote a fantastic story called Woodwalker. And, and in the story, the heroine, who is this incredible lady, the heroine reasons this way in an argument about fireflies. Okay, let me set it up for you. She's in a discussion with a queen, but this queen is a materialist, utilitarian-minded person, no such thing as, as God or anything beyond that is spiritual. And the heroine says this to that queen. Well, what about things like fireflies? Pretty to look at but I'd hardly call them useful. What draws us to them? If everything is about pragmatism, why do we as humans seek out beauty? Beauty is useless, close quote. And everyone does seek out beauty because the silent message of creation speaks to all. The sun is a very intimate example. Uh, verse 4, in the heavens he's pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming from his home. That, that doesn't mean going to work in the morning. It's a Hebrew image for a bridegroom who's just been told by his dad, you can go get your bride. <laughs> he is excited. Oh, my goodness. It rejoices like an athlete running a course, rises from one of the heavens, circles the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. The sun's circular movement touches all. It speaks to a creator who is a benevolent provider. This is why throughout the centuries there have been missionaries who have regularly experienced moments where they, they meet people who've never heard anything about God and they share the scriptures and the natives go, oh, of course. A couple of examples. Mid-sixth century, two really remarkable people, Columba and Gaul, um, they, they went from their home in Ireland to share the Bible with the Alamanni people, Alamanni Swiss people that were around Lake Constance. Um, today we would call it northeastern Switzerland. Okay, so they went there, they shared the Bible with these people, and, and the, reportedly the, the leader of the Alamanni said this, oh, that makes sense. 
In fact, we reasoned that it had to be something like that. Mid-6th century. 20th century. A guy named Don Richardson had the exact same experience with the Sawi people on the island of Irian Jaya, which is now part of Indonesia. When they heard the gospel, the leaders of the Sawi people said, we knew it. We knew it from, from the, the world around us. We knew that the truth had to be something like that. Close quote. And between those two missionaries, a couple of really bright thinkers reasoned why this is so. Um, Albert Magnus and Thomas Aquinas, probably two of the most brilliant human beings ever to walk the earth, Albert Magnus, Thomas Aquinas, they were on the same faculty together at the University of Paris in 1250. You ever go back in time, that's where you ought to go to school. Anyway, um, here's what they reasoned. By the way, you think I'm long-winded, you should read Thomas Aquinas. So I summarized, okay? Take too long, let me sum up. Here's, here's my summary of their thinking here. Natural or, or general revelation should be interpreted differently than biblical or specific revelation because the Bible itself demands that each type be understood according to its revealed logic. There is a logical method for interpreting creation, a method made clear by the world itself. Similarly, there is a right hermeneutic for interpreting the Bible, a method made clear by Scripture itself. They notice that the Bible itself commands and exalts intimately studying both the Word and the world of God. Which likely explains, think now, that likely explains why the scientific revolution only occurred where it did. The great, what we call the great scientific revolution only occurred in the lands where the Bible had deeply influenced the culture. Only where Christianity applauded this kind of thinking did what we call modern science arise. Uh, Chris Armstrong's a really great professor. He, he puts it this way. Western humankind developed natural philosophy, what we now call science, to unprecedented heights because Christians, and almost all the great scientists were Christians, knew that creation is not itself God. That's pantheism. Nor is creation anti-God. That's dualism. Rather, creation reflects God. A second building block was found in the awe and wonder with which knowledge about the world was pursued by those who held this God-reflecting way of seeing the world. Close quote. The wonder of the world sparks joy. It can improve life on earth. That is the power of general revelation. It's made available to all. And the person who embraces it can accomplish great things. But wait, there's more. God also grants specific revelation, the wonder of the word. Let's read the last of Psalm 19. Read the, the rest of it. Uh, verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They're more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from my blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right, look at what God gives here in, in special revelation, in Scripture. He gives instruction. You see that in verse 7? God gives instruction. Verse 7 also exposes how Scripture is God's testimony. That's really interesting because testimony signifies something understandable. God speaks 
in, in human, speaking human, he speaks in human language. So the truth is understandable for us, even if the concepts are far beyond our ability to understand sometimes. Do you realize how unspeakably important this is? With both general revelation and special revelation, God has wonderfully testified about himself. In spoken and unspoken language, God's made a way for us to understand, for us to know him. This guy, uh, John Polkinghorne, he taught quantum mathematics for a quarter of a century at Cambridge. I want to share with you something that he wrote about God's testimony in the world that also applies to the testimony of Scripture. Uh, Sir John, Reverend Dr. Polkinghorne, remarkable polymath, he said this, We are so familiar with the fact that we can understand the world that most of the time we take it for granted. It is what makes science possible. Yet it could have been otherwise. The universe might have been a disorderly chaos rather than an orderly cosmos. Close quote. He's right. But God gives understandable testimony, instruction, and precepts. How how many people here have baked cookies? You've ever baked cookies? Raise your hand. All right, you baked cookies. All right. Did you just learn by fiddling around in the kitchen, throwing stuff together until finally you hit on something? No, somebody taught you through a recipe and or hands-on instruction. They modeled for you how to beat the dough, how to, how to shape the balls in the cookie sheet, how to recognize when they're done. They showed you how to follow a recipe for success. That's pikudim. Uh, in verse 8, the word we, we render precepts. Pikudim. God shows us to do the right things. He gives us a recipe for successful living. The wonder of God's word is incalculable. He has spoken to us. The last four things God provides in a scripture all work together. Commands in verse 8, fear in verse 9, ordinances in verse 9, and warning in verse 11. They work together. My dad uh, loved coaching football. This is my dad with one of his first middle school teams he coached. And by the way, with the cutest mascot ever in history. Um, Anyway. I was so cute before I got my teeth. Anyway, um, those boys, they knew, they knew my dad's rules. They understood his warnings. Take a lap. They, they, they respected him with a healthy fear. They responded to his whistles. When my dad passed away, we received many notes. They're all precious, but maybe the most moving ones came from his former athletes. Um, notes like this. Coach influenced so many. I count myself as one of those whose life will be forever changed for having played for him. My entire family thought the world of him because he was a rock of rightness. He trained our teams to win. We loved him fiercely, even as we were in awe of him. That's what a great coach does. So that's why God provides his team members with commands, fear, ordinances, and warning. When general and special revelation combined to lead Jonathan Edwards to faith in Jesus... Edwards realized that he needed what God gives. He didn't need to just study the world anymore. He needed to study Scripture. So he resolved this. This is from his personal journal. Resolved to study the Scripture so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of God. Close quote. God gives us treasure in his Bible. We should mine it. And that, and that revelation is described in our text. Take a look. According to verse 7, God's special revelation is perfect, trustworthy, and enduring. Now, these are three Hebrew words that all have very similar roots. They all come from words that describe something that is solid. Who wrote this psalm? At the very beginning, you read it. A psalm of whom? David. When David lived in Israel, he experienced earthquakes. We know from the record that there were earthquakes during the time he was there. 
And, and those earthquakes are <clears throat> pretty shattering there. So when David built his house, when he built his palace, he built it on this incredibly deep, rich vein of solid limestone, very, very solid. And now 3,000 years later, those foundations of David's house have not changed. They are still there. If you want your life to stand up to a tumultuous world, build on the rock of God's words. All God's people said? Verse 8 teaches God's revelation is right and radiant. That means that what God says shines truth. It is correct. And verse 9 shows God's words are pure, reliable, altogether righteous. Who, who, here, likes, um, who here likes sweets? Raise your hand if you like sweets. Yeah, okay, me too, in case you didn't know that. I think David joins us in the sweet tooth camp because look what he does. He uses sweets as a metaphor for God's revealed words. Verse 10, look at it. They're more desirable than gold and abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. God is saying here that the most desirable thing, the sweetest thing in the world is script. It is yummier than Godiva chocolate. All right, so, so look at it all together. Look at it all together. In scripture, God gives instruction, testimonies, precepts, commands, fear, ordinances, warning. Those, those word gifts from God are perfect. They're trustworthy. They're enduring. They're right. They're radiant. They shine. They're, they're pure and reliable, altogether righteous, most desirable and sweet. Now, please note this. These descriptions in Psalm 19 are only true of God's revelation granted through His Holy Spirit working in His selected human authors. The canon of Scripture is all of this greatness. That is not true of what you imagine when you dream after eating a bunch of pepperoni before bed. Okay? I taught on this one time, and after the meeting, very sweet, charismatic sister in Christ came up to chat. She, she was a little unhappy with me. She asked me <clears throat> if I didn't want more. I, I, I didn't have a picture, but this is real close. So um, she asked me if I didn't want more than just Scripture. Don't you want more? And she said to me, she said, the Bible's not enough. I need God's extra words that are just for me. I answered her with a form of what I learned from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, I mentioned, was the leader of the Great Awakening in American history. And he wrote a wonderful book about it called Religious Affections. And here's what he said in Religious Affections. He said, some people actually imagine that the revelation in God's word is not enough to meet our needs. They think that God from time to time carries on actual conversation with them, chatting with them, satisfying their doubts, testifying to his love for them, promising them support and blessings. As a result, their emotions soar. They're full of bubbling joy that is mixed with self-confidence and a high opinion of themselves. The foundation for these feelings, however, does not lie with the Bible itself, but instead rests on the sudden creation of their imaginations. These people are clearly deluded. God's word is for all of us and each of us. He does not need to give particular messages to particular people. Close quote. Now, Edwards isn't saying that God isn't intimately with each Christian. You read the book, you'll go on. He, he sees very much that the Holy Spirit is with us. He does guide us. Edwards is saying the Lord doesn't speak words to people beyond Scripture. God's revealed words are more than enough. After all, look what they achieve. According to Psalm 19, God's Word brings, look at it, renewal, wisdom, 
gladness, bright eyes, abundant reward, and perception of right. Awesome! All that just from studying Scripture. And by the way, the last two may be the most amazing. Willful sin turned into freedom and changed thought and word patterns. The Bible takes my willful sin and can you, the Lord uses it to turn that willful sin into freedom. The Bible can take my thoughts and, and, and my words and put them into acceptable patterns. Verses 13 and 14, listen, moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I'll be blameless and cleansed from my blatant rebellion. You want to memorize a verse? Memorize this one right here. This is a verse you ought to memorize. May the words of verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, I know what you're thinking. And I, in response to those amazing blessings, you're wondering, well, what's holding us back, Right? In, in your, um, in your uh, Mary Poppins uh, imitation, you're asking, well, what stands in the way of such wonderful learning? I mean, why wouldn't each person study world and word in order to become practically perfect in every way? Hmm? Great question, Mary. Thank you for asking. Um, in our age, I find three big enemies that keep us from growing in wonder through God's general and his specific revelation. The first of these great enemies is absorption with personal happiness. Happiness, happiness is quite often the enemy of learning. Just ask any athlete, ask any military person, doctoral student. They'll tell you, if you want to be happy all the time, you'll never put in the work. Wonderful opportunities abound, but it takes work to get your eyes off yourself. The other day, I was teaching with you guys, and I spoke about one of the most marvelous paintings ever created, uh, Rembrandt van Rijn's uh, The Night Watch. Rembrandt was such an observer of God's world and his word that he became one of the masters of art. After I referenced that painting with you guys, a listener sent me this photo. Why don't you look at this photo? Can you tell what painting it is behind these kids? That's the night watch. These poor students are so engrossed in the imaginary personal happiness of social media that they are blind to the night watch. They are missing one of the greatest wonders that they will ever have a chance to see because their vision is full of reflected self. By the way, that's what social media is. It's reflected self. Thank goodness we're not like that. As people put their phones away. Um, here's the big problem. Fixation on being happy keeps my eyes closed to the, to the glory of God, to the beauty that pervades every passage of Scripture in every situation in the world. Again, I think... I don't think anyone's ever said it better than that brilliant early American, John Edwards. Look what he said. God's glory, not human happiness, is his end in creation. But this is because God, in his all-sufficient fullness, must communicate himself by the exercise of his attributes. God can be said to aim at the creature's happiness, but it is a happiness that consists in contemplating and rejoicing in God's glory manifested in creation and redemption, close quote. In other words, true happiness is found in God's revelation, but we're too selfish to see it. A second blockade is the blindness of hurriedness. Do you ever miss wonderful things because you're in a rush? Do you speed through, even with scripture, do you speed through a text because you've got to finish your required reading for the day? One year after I started reading Jonathan Edwards as a kid, and, and, and then I became a Christian, one year later, a Texan uh, named Mac Davis, he appeared on The Tonight Show. And, um, and backstage, he got into a long conversation with this guy, Doc Severance, and he was the band leader for the show. And that conversation led uh, Davis to write this poem. He said, hey, mister, where are you going in such a hurry? 
Don't you think it's time you realize there's a whole lot more to life than work and worry? The sweetest things in life are free and right there before your eyes. Before you went to work this morning in the city, did you spend some time with your family? Did you kiss your wife and tell her that she's pretty? Did you take your children to your breast and love them tenderly? Did, did you ever walk through the forest, stop and dream a while among the trees? Well, you can look up through the leaves straight to heaven. You can almost hear the voice of God in each and every breeze. You've got to stop and smell the roses. You've got to count your many blessings every day. You're going to find your way to heaven is a rough and rocky road if you don't stop and smell the roses along the way. We often don't enjoy wonder because we are hurried. And thirdly, we are beset with cynicism. This part of the message was so easy to write, it seemed unfair. Examples of cynicism are all around us. People are so terrified. They are so filled with skepticism that we fight over anything and nothing. Look, Cloverly uh, cartoon here, a Coverly cartoon, he, he shows this really well. It's a meeting of the National Society of Skeptics, and one guy says, I don't believe we've met. And the other says, I don't believe you don't believe we've met. That's, that's pretty funny. That's good. Uh, or, there's, or there's this one that has the old line, uh, if you see light at the end of the tunnel, it's probably an oncoming train. Now, now, this one's really, really well done because of the eyes. Look at the eyes. Notice, notice how, how narrow they are. That's, that's brilliant because cynicism causes people to slant everything. It's like a filter that prevents one from seeing wonderful truth. For example, a um, number of years ago, I spoke at a pro-life fundraiser and uh, had a great time. And, and one of the couples at my table were just really fascinating people. I enjoyed them. We exchanged numbers and texted a little bit back and forth. And... Um, a few months after I spoke at that pro-life fundraiser, there was this moment, I mean momentous decision that was announced by the United States government. It was a, it was a decision, a rule change that would lead to uh, at least 10,000 fewer murdered babies every year. Awesome. So I, I texted my new pro-life friend and I said, hey, I just heard the news. Isn't that wonderful? Here's what she wrote back. Look at the text. I just heard the news. Isn't that wonderful? It's terrible. That was just a pandering play by the president. Won't help. What? What? I learned as I got to know them that this person had such a heavy distaste for the person who was the current president that she could not appreciate any good news. Everything was filtered through cynicism. Once again, all I can say is thank goodness we're not like that. Right? You know, I stalk you people on your social media. And I think many of us are exactly like that. However we vote, we are jaundiced. Cynicism, hurriedness, self-centeredness, they keep us from the wonder of God in his world and his word. So what can we do about it? Three things. First, aim at the right target. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, 7 and 8. But everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Absorption with personal happiness is earthly. It is ephemeral. It is unsatisfying. Knowing Christ, that's the real prize. If I aim to know Jesus better and better, I grow in happiness and joy because that's the only thing of surpassing value. I, I put a quote from John Edwards, uh, Jonathan Edwards in your notes. Uh, this is from his book concerning the end for which God created the world. He says this, God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that these two are one passion. That is really thoughtful. This 
Philippians chapter 3. This is the antidote to this. Personal absorption with, with power, popularity, pleasure, etc., etc. Jesus has redeemed me. And through trust in him, I really know God himself. When I aim, when I aim for that, God's grace ensures that I experience real happiness. Hurriedness was our second enemy, and the answer to hurry is pretty simple. Make time to smell the roses and study Scripture, right? Psalm 11, verse 2. Uh, read it with me, please. Psalm 11, 2, all together. The Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. And then about, about biblical revelation, Psalm 119, together. Your servant will think about your statutes. Your decrees are my delight and my counselors. This is a life-encompassing truth. God's works and God's worlds God's words are efficacious. Scripture is efficacious for every situation. So ruminate on God's works. Get counsel by his words. It takes training. It takes discipline. It takes commitment. And it is your personal responsibility. Look at this. Comedian Duncan Trussell. He summarizes what we're up against. I know this is not easy. Here's what he says. He says, some poor phoneless fool is probably sitting next to a waterfall somewhere, totally unaware of how angry and scared he's supposed to be. Now, the very fact that that is so funny is chilling because it shows what we're up against. Now, when I say you have got to discipline and work to stop and smell the roses, this is the typical rejoinder that I get. But pastor, you don't understand how busy I am. I cannot go sit phoneless by some waterfall. I understand. Friends, I know very few people as busy as I am, but I work very hard not to be hurried. There is a difference. You can be busy and not be hurried. Because I'm unhurried this last week, I could stop in a very busy week. I could stop and enjoy God's revelation. I, I could make time to read the Bible and really chew on it. I, I, I had a morning this week when I looked over at the grapes that were on our table at breakfast, and I was just fascinated with the way that the condensation was forming and the way the light was reflecting on it. And I was wondering why the condensation was forming that way, what was going on in the room temperature, humidity. I didn't have time at that moment to think about all that and look it up, but it was fascinating. So I grabbed my phone, I snapped a picture of it so I could think about it later. We got three problems, we got three solutions, okay? Our three problems, absorption with personal happiness, blindness of hurriedness and cynicism, those blockade us to the wonder of God in word and world. Our three answers aim at the right target, which is God's glory. Make time to smell the roses and study scripture. And third, consider the truly good. Here's how you combat cynicism. Read with me. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 8, you join me on the underlined parts. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if anything praiseworthy, Dwell on these things. The key Greek verb here is dwell, loizome. Loizome, was, it was another word from the agora, from the marketplace. By the way, loizome was an accounting word. It meant very, very careful accounting. But here's what happened. The Greek philosophers took this old word loizome, and they, they gave it the lasting meaning that it had for Paul when he wrote Philippians. They reshaped loizome to mean carefully thinking through what's true. Um, scholar Henry Heidland, he explains, he says, since Plato... Loisome is the typical term for non-emotional thinking of the philosopher seeking apprehension of something objectively present. Close quote. In simple terms, it means thinking through what is real and true. So with that in mind, look at the whole command. 
There are true things that are good and honorable, etc. We've got to consider, we have to dwell on those things. So help me out. Let's go through a few of these. I'd like you to raise your hand and name something that you know is true. Raise your hand. What's something you know is true? It's unequivocally true. What do you got? Stop signs are red. Very good. My, my colorblind son would never have agreed with you until he got his glasses. No, he, he knew it was red. He just, he couldn't. yes, that's right. Stop signs are red. Very nice. Are they red in every country? Anyway, they are here. Yes. There is a sky. Very good. Nice. What else? Yes. The world is round. The sun circles around it. They knew that. It was never. Anyway. Um, yeah, good. These are things that we know are true, right? You know these things are true. All right, let's go to uh, honorable. What's something that's honorable? What's something that's honorable? Telling the truth. Telling the truth is honorable. Very good. Yeah, what else is honorable? Faithfulness. What? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is honorable. Uh, it is, very much so. That's why when somebody does their duty well, we, we will often honor them. We're, we're reflecting that honor. Okay, how about, uh, how about moral excellence? What's something that's morally... I know you live in a cesspool, and humankind always has, and will till Jesus returns, but there are still commendable things. What's something commendable? What have you seen that is commendable in life? Charity. What's that? Charity. Charity. Charity is commendable. Char- as long as it's not giving to her. Yeah, charity, it is wonderful. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's commanded. What else is commendable? Parents, this is your chance. There's a bunch of young people in here obeying your parents. <laughs> obeying your parents. Very good. That's great. Awesome. Um, what, what else is commendable? Give me, give me one more. What's that? Service towards others. Very good. Now, th- those are great. Let your mind dwell on those things, not Twitter. Okay? It, it is fascinating how, and I'm not, I'm not picking on us at all, but it's fascinating that it took a little while, everyone's sitting here, whether you spoke or not, it, it took a while to come up with an answer. Now, I know part of that's in your, you're in a big group and you, and you don't want to say anything that isn't thought through, so you're like, well, is that, I don't, sure. But, but still, the very fact that we didn't have at the very tips of our tongues answers to these things says that we've probably been dwelling too much on things that matter a whole 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 lot less right let's close with some very specific questions these are related to how you can dwell on the truly good Um, I, I found these very convicting they probably will be to you too how am I going to engage more fully in God's revelation and creation You need to come up with a plan. You must do it. Psalm 19 is calling you to find wonder in God's world. How am I going to, second question, how am I going to engage more richly in Scripture? What are you going to do to make sure you can grow more deeply, as Jonathan Edwards resolved? Third question, what needs to change so I can live one passion of joy in God's glory? What needs to change? Let's pray about that. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will change. We are, our chief end is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. They're one in the same. Help us change through your wonderfulness. I know, I know a lot of these people are, are busy, and, and that's great. And a, and a whole bunch of these folks, Lord, are brilliant. They're very wise. They're experienced. They're accomplished. 
And because of that, there's these, there's these layers of, of know-it-all cynicism that build up. They build up on us like, like bad layers of paint on old furniture. And I beg you to scrape us raw. To use wonder to scrape us raw. Wonder in your world and in your word. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is studying with us today that is not a believer in Jesus. I beg you to do for them what you did for Jonathan Edwards, what you did for me. Let your revelation, general and specific, speak to them. Let it do what it does and show them the truth that you so love them that Jesus, very God, he, he died on a cross, giving up his life to pay for sin. And every one of us who believes in him is in his resurrection, and we follow him in everlasting life. I pray they'll trust you right now. If you just believed on Jesus and you're studying with us elsewhere, be bold. Make a note of that in the chat. Let the pastor there rejoice with you. If you're here in the room and you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Amen. Father, thank you for these believers in Jesus Christ, new and old. And encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.